Hello, this is Vern Robinson, and welcome to the first edition of my podcast, Survival in Catastrophic Times. Tonight's episode, I entitled Black on a Sinking Democratic Ship. Imagine yourself on a sinking ship. To put the image into focus, think of that ship as the Titanic approaching an iceberg. Now alter your image only slightly. The sinking ship is named the USS Democrat, or better, the USS Joe Biden. Whatever you name your ship, the problem you face is still the same. You are a black adult and you've been taught all your life to believe that all real blacks vote Democratic. The vessel you're on is about to sink and you must survive. Injuries are damn near certain. The deadly waters swirling around the ship are freezing and full of Republicans, sharks, white supremacists, and creatures resembling Donald Trump and the Proud Boys. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema have all hijacked the lifeboats. The question is, what are you going to do? As the Ghostbusters theme song asks you, who are you going to call? It might be a useful to know a little history about the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has changed significantly during its more than two centuries of existence. During the 19th century, the party supported or tolerated slavery and it opposed civil rights reforms after the American Civil War to retain the support of Southern voters. By the mid-20th century, it had undergone a dramatic ideological realignment and reinvented itself as a party supporting organized labor, the civil rights of minorities, and progressive reform. Since President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal of 1930s, the party has also tended to favor greater government intervention in, in the economy and to oppose government intervention in private non-economic affair, affairs of citizens. I just read a book not too long ago and it's called Steadfast Democrats. And it's a groundbreaking look at how group expectations have unified black Americans in their support for the American Democratic Party. In this essay, authors Cheryl Laird and Ishmael White explore African Americans' long complicated history with poly, poly, party politics, I can really say that, and the roots of their political unity. In the book, they show that African Americans have a long, complicated history with party politics. Historically, blacks have been part of both major parties. When the African American men first obtained the right to vote after the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870, they nearly all identified and supported the Republican Party and its candidates, rewarding the party of Lincoln for its commitment to end slavery and expanding black civil rights. However, as political power was gradually returned to Southern Democrats 
in part through the 1877 Compromise, which resolved the disputed 1876 presidential election, African Americans, who at this time nearly all resided in southern states, were once again stripped of their voting rights. It would not be until early to the early 20th century, following the large-scale migration of African Americans to the northern cities in search of employment and refuge from the repressive Jim Crow policies of the South, that we would see African Americans re-engaging in poly, party, party, party politics. Ah, I told you I could say that. In the North, the Democratic Party, through its commitment to organized labor, would for the first time begin making inroads with black voters. Despite this, many African Americans, both North and South, maintained commitments to the Republican Party. It was only when the Democratic Party took up the mantle of civil rights in the mid to late 1960s that the black support for the party coalesced into the reliable Democratic voting bloc we know today. While the historical antecedents of black Democratic Party support are rather straightforward, understanding how it is that for nearly 50 years Black Americans have been able to remain unified in their support for the Democratic Party is more a complicated question, especially given the growing economic and political diversities of the African Americans over this time period. For example, during the 1960s, there has been a significant growth in both the black middle class and the upper class, and perhaps even more interesting, substantial diversification of black political views. Since the 1960s, blacks have become increasingly more moderate and even conservative on a number of important political issues, including certain racial policies. Why haven't these changes resulted in an opportunity for Republicans to gain support from African Americans? In the book, they argue that to leverage their pol political strength as a minority party in a majority-based political system, black Americans have come to prioritize group solidarity in party politics. This partisan loyalty is maintained through a strategic social process that they call racialized social constraint whereby support for Democratic Party has come to be defined as a norm for group behavior. In other words, supporting the Democratic Party has come to be understood as just something you do as a black person, an expectation of behavior meant to empower that racial group. <clears throat> Adherence with this norm of the Democratic support is ensured through a set of social rewards and penalties which recognize compliance and punish defection of racial group members. Interestingly, it's the social and spatial segregation of black Americans that makes all this work. It is through racially segregated spaces that blacks become aware of the importance of the party norm for the racial group 
and it is within these segregated spaces that social rewards for compliance and penalties for defection can come to define an individual's social status within the group. The result of all this is that to the extent any individual black American values their relationship with other black Americans, they will continue to act in accordance with the group norm of party support lest they find themselves socially isolated. This decision to ensure collective action for the larger group interest is an effective strategy for leveraging political power, especially in a two-party system. A divided group minimizes the likelihood of responses and risks by either party. But as a partisan voting bloc, blacks are positioned to put push their issues onto the party agenda. If Democrats fail to be responsive to blacks, they can threaten to withhold their vote by not turning out. This is how racialized social constraint maintains both black party loyalty and black political power. Now, then there's the question of Joe Biden in 2024. Currently, Joe's average approval rating stands about 43%, which is not really not that bad. It's a number that Donald Trump didn't reach for most of his presidency, and George W. Bush spent much of his second term below 40%, and Barack Obama was only in the low 40s for most of his two terms. That said, however, much Biden remains politically viable, or whether Biden remains politically viable, is often a difference between approval and the belief that the politician is really the best option. And a poll from the Merit College, Marist College, shows a significant disconnect on that front when it comes to Biden and the Democratic Party. The NT, NPR, PBS, NewsHour, Marist poll shows Democrats approve of Biden 85% to 10%. That kind of partisan loyalty we've come to expect from such polls, even when the president's fortunes are down. But the poll also asks a telling question about just how much Democrats would like to see Biden run again in 2024. When asked whether Democrats have a better chance of winning the presidency in 2024 if Biden is the party's nominee or someone else is the party's nominee, Democrats are split, 41% to 41%. They're even. When you include Democratic-leaning independents, that question cuts clearly against Joe Biden with only 36% saying he is the best option and 44% preferring someone else. 20% are unsure. Now that's only a little more than one third of the voters Biden would need to rely upon in 2024 saying they prefer him to anyone else on the ballot. Over the past several months, Joe Biden's approval rating has dipped 
among most demographic and political groups. Today, 44% of adults overall say they approve of the way he's handling his job as president. That's down from 55 in July. Biden's approval rating among men and women declined by the same margin, 9% and 12% respectively. The share of white adults say they have a positive view of his job performance has dropped from 45% in July to 37% today. Roughly 6 in 10 white adults, 61%, now say they disapprove of his performance. Though majorities of black, Hispanic, and Asian adults continue to hold a more positive than negative view of Biden's job performance, Approval ratings among each group have dipped significantly over the past two months. For example, among black adults, 67% say they strongly or somewhat approve of the way he's handling the job, and that's down from 85% three months ago. There's also been a sizable change among the members of Biden's own party. In July, 88% of Democrats and Democrat leaners say they approved of the way he was handling his job as president. Today, only 75% approve, and that's a 13 percentage point drop. Two months ago, 92% of adults who identify as Democrats say they had a positive view of Biden's job performance. That's down to 83% today. Independence as a whole, those who say they do not identify as belonging to either major party, but most of them lean toward one party or the other, are now more likely to say they disapprove rather than approve of Biden's job performance. Two months ago, 54% had a positive view. Today, only 42% say they approve. Overall, 27% of adults say they strongly approve of his job performance, and that's down from 38% just six months ago. Similarly, the share who say they strongly disapprove of his of the job he's doing has ridden, risen. 38% today versus 29% back in March. <clears throat> While a large majority of black adults say they strongly approve of the job Biden is been doing as president. In March, 71%, only half of them said they strongly approve today. Only about a third of Hispanics, 34%, and a quarter of Asians, 27, say the same thing. Public confidence in the president to handle various issues, including coronavirus, pandemic, and foreign policy issues, has also slipped. In March, nearly two-thirds of the adults expressed confidence in Biden to handle the public health impact of the coronavirus outbreak. Today, it's down to 51%. The share of Democrats expressing confidence in Biden's ability to handle uh, COVID-19 has declined from 92% to 81% today. This pattern is also evidenced across other issues, including Biden's ability to make good decisions about foreign policy, economic, and immigration. Smaller majorities of Democrats today express confidence in Biden to handle 
most issues compared with six months ago, and the drop has been particularly pronounced in views of his ability to bring the country closer together. In March, 74% of the Democrats expressed optimism that Biden could do this. Today, only half say that he can do it, 55%. There have been similar declines in shares that he is also mentally sharp, 54% before, 43% now. And whether he's honest, 57% at the beginning of the term, only 51% now. For example, while 89% of Democrats say that Biden was a good role model back in March, that has declined to 80% today. And six months ago, 86% of Democrats said he was mentally sharp. Now that's dropped to 73%. The point remains though, what are you going to do? I believe that black voters specifically and Hispanic and Asian voters in general have come to depend far too much on the Democratic Party that underperforms and fails to deliver in most instances. And in those eras when they have delivered, like the Great Society legislation during Lyndon Johnson's one-term presidency in 1960s, the quality of life for black people did not significantly improve over an extended period. The unintended consequences of such programs have been the welfare state, failing urban schools, decaying inner city communities, dismantled youth programs, rising unemployment, drug addiction, rising poverty, the wealth gap, and crime. And I remind you, it was during Democratic President Bill Clinton's administration that America experienced an explosive surge in prison construction and the militarization of the nation's police departments. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right now, other Democrats have become our fierce foes. Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema are throwback Dixocrats of the 1950s who supported segregation. Hell, Manchin was elected as a Democratic member of the Senate from a state, West Virginia, in which 50% of the voters selected Trump. Also, don't forget, it was Uncle Jim Clyburn, congressman from South Carolina, who stabbed Bernie Sanders in the back and resurrected Joe Biden's campaign from the trash heap. Progressive Democrats detest moderate and conservative Democrats. And what the hell is a conservative Democrat anyway? What is it, a Republican that is posing as a Democrat or a throwback Dixiecrat? Desperate times require desperate methods, measures and methods. With friends like this, I would ask you who needs enemies? What is the answer? And that's the bottom line. Point number one, I would suggest we abandon political parties. What are you talking about? Possibly a parliamentarian government. But first, I would remind you that George Washington, he wasn't one of my favorite people, but in his farewell address, 
Washington continues to advance his idea of the dangers of sectionalism and expands his warning to include the dangers of political party as a danger to the country as a whole. Washington recognizes that it's natural for people to organize and operate within groups such as political parties, but he also argues that every government has recognized political parties as an enemy to the people and has sought to repress them because of their tendency to seek more power than other groups and to take re re revenge on their political opponents. He feels that disagreements between political parties will weaken the government. Point number two, I would suggest that the peoples of color, black, Hispanic, and Asians, adopt an independent third party. And I know everyone rolls their eyes when I mention a third party because they say, well, it won't work. It's not competitive. If all of the minorities now flocking together under the democratic umbrella were to create an independent party voting block, I think it would be tremendously powerful. I think people, all people of color and reasonable folks from the majority should leave both parties in mass and become independents. Then you barter or broker the blocks of votes for the most leverage to either party. The bargain should be clearly quid pro quo, defined as the essential meaning of quid pro quo, something that is given to you or done for you in return for something you have given or done for someone else. Clear. For example, not only would we agree to help Bernie Sanders become president, for example, but also require successful passage of the following legislation. Number one, the Voting Rights Act. Have to protect our voting rights against these draconian laws that states like Georgia and the old Confederacy have recently passed. Police reform. Thanks to Senator Tim Scott, also a black from Carolina, uh, Corey, Senator Cory Booker was unable to get police reform passed. We need federal voter rights laws to overturn the uh, voting restrictions that have been passed by individual states. We need universal health care expanded to include health and vision and lower drug prices. And I would personally say we need a ban on assault weapons. But all of these legislative goals can be bargained and leveraged in return for our help to elect whomever it is on the ballot that we're willing to support for a president. And what's the result if we don't get these things in quid pro quo? Maybe the next election we back someone else and back another party.